Today is November 3rd, 2020, and this is episode number 31, a very spooky, once again, post-Halloween, pre-election result, episode number 31 of Blurred Laws in Life. And this week, it's spooky not because of Halloween, but spooky because we may have a new president of the United States in a few hours. We may have the same president of the United States in a few hours, and we may not know who the president of the United States is for a while, depending on the votes and how close it is after tonight. But I'm recording this prior to the election results, and maybe, just maybe, at the end of this podcast, after my interview of the legendary Steve Kipner, I will tell you, I will announce, I will say what you all will know by the time you listen to this episode 31 of Blurred Laws in Life, who the winner is if we, in fact, have a winner today. But on today's episode of Blurred Laws in Life, episode number 31, it is my true honor to welcome on the show literally one of the great songwriters of our time. You may not have heard of Steve Kipner, but you certainly have listened to and jammed to and grooved to his work. Unlike so many other songwriters in the world who may have one or two hits, maybe zero hits, maybe one hit, who have a very short career, Steve has been a songwriter for 40 years. And some of his hit songs spanning those 40 years include Olivia Newton-John's Physical, Let's Get Physical, Chicago's Grammy-nominated Hard Habit to Break, Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera, Natasha Benningfield's These Words, The Hardest Thing by 98 Degrees, He Loves You Not by Dream, Stole by Kelly Rowland, The Scripts Break Even and The Man Who Can't Be Moved, and American Idol Season 8 Chris Allen's first top five single debut, Live like we're dying, as well as Fight for This Love by Cheryl Cole and many, many more. So when I say Steve is a legend, I think you know now that uh, he is. Um, he has written hit songs literally for 40 years from Let's Get Physical, Physical, Olivia Newton-John, her biggest hit, one of her biggest hits, if not her biggest hit, all the way to Christina Aguilera's Genie in a Bottle, and many others, as I mentioned. So I will bypass my usual discussion of the law this week, and we will get right to the great, the legendary, Steve Kipper. Okay, so now I have on with me Steve Kipner. Hi, Steve. Hey, mate. How are you? I'm pretty good. 
I've say. spoken about you in an introduction. I discussed some of your great songs that you've written and your your legendary career, and and we're going to get into that in a minute. But um, I have some preliminary questions for you. Okay. First of all, I detect an Australian accent, which is confusing to me because on Wikipedia it says you're from Cincinnati, Ohio. So explain yourself. I'll tell you what happened. My father came from Dayton, Ohio, and he joined the Navy when he was literally 17. He was supposed to be 18, but he joined the um, Ameri- American Air Force, actually, not the Navy, but he was on he was on a ship on his way to the Philippines when Pearl Harbor happened, and the ship was diverted to Australia, and that's where he spent the war years, um, based in Brisbane in Australia. That's where he met my mother. So after the war was over, my mother came to America, to Cincinnati, where I was born, and then I was just a few months, maybe eight months old, something like that, and my grandparents from Australia came to visit, and then my mum was so sad that they were leaving, my dad said, well, let's all go. So we went back to Australia. So my only memories as a kid are from Australia. So I don't, I even, but I'm officially technically born in Cincinnati. That solves one of the great mysteries of our time. That literally is, has confounded people for years, for decades. And you've just, you've just solved it. I really appreciate that. There it is. That's the answer. (laughs) All right. And now being from Australia, my next question is, who is considered to be the greatest Australian? Paul Hogan, Nicole Kidman, Steve Kipner, <laughs> or Well, I, I'm D. a little biased in this respect. What's the last one, by the way? Well, I was going to say, and I can't remember the, the guy's name, the, um, the guy who, who was killed by a stingray, but who was very... Oh, Steve Irwin. Steve, Steve Irwin, Irwin, yes. Well, I'm a little biased with Paul Hogan because he's a mate of mine and I bought the house I live in from him. So I see him quite a lot. Do you really? Not so much in these COVID times, but um, he came in, I bought the house from him and he still pops in for a cup of coffee every time he's in the area. So So he lives in Los Angeles? He lives in Venice, a beach at at the moment. Um, He goes back to Australia a lot because he's... A lot of his original family are all there, and he's got a son here named Chance, and Chance wants to be here for a while, so I'm not sure where Paul wants to end up, but he's back and forwards a lot. And does Paul carry that knife with him that he made famous in Crocodile Dundee? Does he carry that with him all the time? Does he threaten people with that all the time? He's a real funny guy, and and he really just – he's one of those guys that – never runs out of great stories. So he's really entertaining guy to be around, that's for sure. Now, was it just coincidence that you bought his house, that you bought Paul Hogan's house? Yeah, complete coincidence. And I'll tell you exactly the story. This might be boring and edited out, but <laughs> there's a thing that every Australian has for breakfast, and it's called Vegemite. It's a really nasty... Men at I work. Love it. Men at work, Vegemite sandwich. Men at work, Vegemite sandwich. I know Colin Hay because he lives in Topanga, where I come from, so... Everyone who uh, knows Men at Work and knows that song. What's the name of that song with the Vegemite sandwich? Um, you know. That's... He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. Exactly. Do What's the name of that song? The land, uh, the land Down Under. 
but actually Colin, believe it or not, is originally from Scotland. So, um, but he's also a well-known Australian that isn't really Australian. But he grew up there, or he spent a lot of time there, and actually is as Aussie as you get. But technically, he's Scottish. So Vegemite is this sort of thing you put on toast, and it's like yeasty. It's not sweet. It's sort of um, spicy. In England, they have one called Marmite. So Vegemite is something that's just part of our family. So I, I just saw this house on the internet, and I, and I thought I like this area. So if ever a house comes up, I'll go and look. So my son Harrison and I just came and checked it out, and we walked in on the open house thing, and not an open house. There was a, an estate agent guy to show me around, and I opened up the cupboard in the kitchen. And there was a jar of Vegemite. And I said, Harry, this is a, an omen. This sounds like, you know, the fact that there's Vegemite here. And then as I, Harry was saying, oh, you're kidding. This voice comes from the other room saying, hey, you call that an omen. <laughs> and, Paul, and Paul Hogan walks out. And, that, and that's literally the first time I met him. And you guys ended up being good friends. That's really funny. That's great. That's, a, that's actually a great story. Not boring at all. So um, now Andrew Frampton is a friend of yours and he's been on the show. He's a, also a client and he's a friend of mine. And he and I had, and, and he wanted to chime in. And since you are, and we're going to go through your incredible career in a moment, but since you are a, literally a legendary songwriter, it would be a, a big mistake not to get your thoughts on this. And if you listen to Andrew's interview that I did of him, we were discussing whether lyrics or melody are the most important part of a song, the music or the lyrics. And Andrew, along with a lot of other great songwriters who I've had on the show, all came down with the melody. And the point that he made was that in foreign countries, like he said, Japan or China or, or some other country where they don't speak English, that the words may not even you know sound the same whatever and it's you know they don't and they may not even understand english when it's not translated but if if it's a big hit because of the melody then that proves that melody is more important than lyrics so we've had this big debate about lyrics versus melody because there's a lot of people who think the lyrics and you can think of incredible songs with incredible lyrics think that you know lyrics are the most important part so i'd like to your view to solve another mystery in addition to the cincinnati versus australia your birthplace mystery the mystery of what is more important in a song, lyrics or melody? Well, this is literally off the cuff, so excuse me if I sort of ramble here, but it's the whole thing. If you take the wheels off a car, it's not going to go. So what are you going to say? Is, are the wheels more important or the, or the car that they sit on? Like they really – that point of Andrews where people in other countries will sing along with the lyrics – and even not even know what they're saying is absolutely true, and it's a great point. And I remember that songs that I really love, I, I sort of think that the melody and the feeling that it gives is part of what's important. But then when you do start to listen to the lyrics and you go, wait a minute, these lyrics are great and they're really touching me or they're, making, they're telling me something, then all of a sudden it makes the song so much better. An example I can give of one of my own songs is when uh, Let's Get Physical or Physical came out, it started doing really well and Olivia had one of the things that she had insisted on was 
to do the video before the song came out. That was the first video ever released before the single was released because it was all about exercise and all that because she was worried that if people would think that it was literally about sex, which it was, it may be a bad look for her and uh, put a lot of people off. So the song was doing really well. And then, because that, that video was doing really well, and everyone thought it was so funny that she was in a, in a gym doing all that stuff. But then after it was already a hit and doing pretty well and definitely going up the charts, I think people started listening to the lyrics more. And they all went, wait a minute, this isn't really about exercise. It's, it's about something else. And it, then it just took off like, um, like a rocket. And the fact that it was banned in other countries – not other there was a few places it was banned South Africa and it was actually banned a couple of places in America Utah and other place another place like that so that made people think well what I better listen to what there if it was banned let me check it out again and all that so the lyrics really did play a big part of that but of course it was already starting to be a bit of a hit because of the melody and everything so it's a hard question to ask. I can agree with Andrew, but also there are songs that I really got to like so much more by listening to the lyrics and it meaning something. So, you know, I don't know how to answer that really. Yeah, it's very, it is a very, it's confounded mankind forever. And now I can't believe I forgot to bring up Olivia Newton-John in your list, in my list of great Australians. And so now I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's a greater Australian, Paul Hogan or Olivia Newton-John? Well, that's easy to answer because Olivia was born in England. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't she well – she's thought of as coming from Australia though. Oh, no. I've known Olivia since I was 17 and I was in a band called Stephen the Board and then she was um, a a singer and then she also was in a duet with um, one of my best mates, John Farah, and his wife, her name was Pat Carroll and she was a singer and she and Olivia were a duet. So did she move to Australia? Did she move to Australia later? I don't know. No, no. Olivia had been in Australia since she was a kid. I see. But they ah, so you're getting out of it by, say, by an, on a technicality because she was not technically born in Australia. I get it. Okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll accept that. So let me ask you something. Um, and that does bring us to, you know, what, what a crazy story about let's get physical being Band. I mean, what year did that? What a different time! What a different era! I mean, now it's like a PG oh, yeah, song, it's, right? It's so milk toast now. It's unbelievable. So, what but year was that? In, I think it was 1981. Okay. I think it was. Oh, one of the weird things with me: the past all becomes like a big past. I'm terrible with dates and when things were. I know about physical was the 80s, uh, and I believe it was 1981. Okay. Was that her biggest hit at the time, or was that your first biggest hit? And how did the two of you connect to Well, actually, believe it or not, Billboard magazine, even now, like last, the last Billboard magazine this year, um, of the top songs of the decade, I think that's number six still of all songs of all time. That's amazing. So it was, it was definitely my biggest hit. And I – I don't want to get past that road. Billboard magazine has physical, let's get physical, written by Steve Kipner, performed by Olivia Newton-John, as the number six song of the decade of, of the all, 80s. Of, no, no, no. It's the number one song of the 80s. 
the number one song of the, the 80s. The number one song of the 80s. It's still now, this year, it was number six or eight, I could be wrong, of songs, biggest songs, biggest Billboard hit songs of all time. Amazing. Of all time. So physical is uh, technically was the number one song of the 80s. So that was that was a, That's, an amazing Steve, thing. I didn't even, I, you know, because when you think of the 80s, you think of Michael Jackson, right? You think of Thriller. You think of Prince, you know, Purple Rain and his albums. And I know I'm missing, you know, probably, but those are the things that I think about when I think of the 80s. I think of Michael Jackson and Prince and Thriller and yet... Your song well, this physical. Was based, this is not me saying that. That was like Billboard. I know. Saying, I know. I know. Billboard magazine has your song physical, the number one song of the eighties. Yes. Damn. Pretty That's cool. Pretty fucking amazing, actually. So let's. Wow. So tell us now. That makes me want to just you know really dive into that even more deeply. I have two questions then. Number one. How did you come up with it? And what was your process in creating and writing physical? And how did you and Olivia Newton-John team up for physical? Okay. I was literally having a songwriting session with an English mate of mine called Terry Shattuck. And we'd been writing a few songs and we were getting together. I was going over to his place at that point and... We sat down and had a cup of tea because he was English and he made a cup of tea. And we said, okay, what are we going to write? So we said, let's write a song. It wasn't going to be called Let's Get Physical. We were just going to write a song that wasn't about love. It was going to be about the physical side of love and stuff. And um, it wasn't going to be called physical. So we wrote the verses, you know, took you to an intimate restaurant and stuff like that. And then – then after we had that, we thought, well, what are we going to – what's the chorus going to be about and stuff? So it ended up – it just sort of came about because we, we literally set out to write a song that wasn't about falling in love, you know, and breaking your heart and all those things that all the songs were about in those days. And that sort of came about – it was just like um, not really planned. We thought, well, let's just do that, and that's what we did, and it just happened pretty quickly. Um, and how did you get Olivia on board? Well, let me tell you first about then the demo. I had um, we had to do a demo. There were no computers in those days, but I had a, a four-track TIAC machine, and uh, so you couldn't. That means it was on a tape machine, and so you you could only have four tracks. So you couldn't really do more overdubs and do real elaborate elaborate things. So I borrowed a drum machine, which. In those days, there was only one drum machine. It was a Roland box you could rent and borrow, or I borrowed it from someone. It had rock one, it had buttons, rock one, rock two, bossa nova one, bossa nova two, and about eight different types of beats. And then you could also adjust the tempo, but there, there was no programming. It was It was just an original old beat. And so we, I recorded that onto one track of the four tracks of the tape recorder, that I, that's what I had available. Then Terry played piano and I played guitar together and that went down as another part. And then we had two tracks for vocals and I sang the demo. Would it be okay if I had my producer 
play the part of the demo on the podcast here? Absolutely. Because I sang the demo, um, I just had assumed that it, a male would sing it. I think Rod Stewart had had Do You Think I'm Sexy or something at that time. So I imagine somebody like Rod Stewart would sing it. If, if I got this cut, if this song was going to be recorded by someone, I thought it would be a male and it would be someone like Rod Stewart. It literally happened that my, my best mate and – who was helping me out as a manager at that time. His name was Roger Davies. He's um, Pink's manager now and he was shares. Like he's a very successful manager. But in those days we were just mates and um, he worked for this guy called Lee Kramer who was Olivia's boyfriend and manager. So I just took the demo of a, on a cassette up to Roger to play in this new song that I'd done. And when I was uh, playing it to him, this guy, Lee Kramer, in the next office, heard the song through the wall, literally through the wall. And But he luckily was uh, managing also the guy who was Mr. Universe at the time. And so he thought, well, if Olivia recorded that song and Mr. Universe was on the cover, let's get physical so there's a muscle man on there, it would be a good look for Olivia. Not that it would be a single or anything, it would just be something you could – it could be an album cover. So he came in and said, what's that song? And it sort of worked out that by luck, Olivia came in 20 minutes later. She, she had a, a pre-scheduled appointment there. And I'd known Olivia, but I'd never once tried to sell her a song or I'd never even thought about it, actually. I thought, geez, we didn't do the same sort of music, I, I thought. And... Um, but he got her to sing it, to record it, because he wanted Mr. Universe on there. But she, after she'd recorded it, thought, this is definitely too risque. And that's why she said, no, I have to do a video first. She wanted to do another song because, release one of the other songs, because she thought it was a bit too risque. And when everyone said, no, it has to be that, she said, well, let's do a video. And that's what I was telling you before. That's how it was just a matter of good lucky things that happened. That's an amazing story. Um, it, is, it is pretty amazing because you couldn't plan that out. It was just a bunch of coincidences there. Well, let me ask you, you said that you had the idea for the lyrics. You had a, the idea for the song. You began with the lyrics and then you filled it in with the melody. Is that Was that your usual way to write music, to begin with the lyrics and then find the melody no, that I fits? No, I wouldn't say what... I would usually like play guitar and I had, I would just strum something and then I would sing. And this is the way it's always been. I would just get some music that either I was playing or the people I was working with were playing. And I would literally walk around the room just singing gibberish, anything, but almost like I was a, um, a radio receiver. Stuff would just come through me and I'd sing it 
And then once it had come through me and it was out, I'd go, oh, I like that bit or that's 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 bit. Then I'd I would sort of keep coming back to that melody, and then words would slowly that felt good over those melodies and stuff like that. So it it always was never really planned. That was one of the few songs that I actually had an idea. Usually I'd say it starts when you actually just start singing stuff and then words come out and you go, that feels good. And then once the idea is established, then you can use um, your, I wouldn't say intelligence, your, um, you're sitting down, you don't need to be near the guitar because you think, okay, now I know what the song's about. What do I need to say now? Then it gets to be a little bit more of an intellectual exercise at that point. But the initial thing is always like just singing and letting stuff come out and then recognizing it if it sounds good or someone else saying, no, that's good. Let's stick to that part. It's amazing how you start off with something that you have no idea is going to be what it becomes and it becomes the number one hit of the 80s and number six or eight of all time. Let's back up for a second, Steve, because I think everyone would be really interested to know, are you classically trained how did you develop this songwriting process that you just described? Not classically trained at all. I just, I've always sort of loved music. And I got to say, it was, I remember being a kid in um, Brisbane in Australia. My parents had a little radio in the kitchen that was on the top shelf. I couldn't really reach it that well, but somehow it was on. And I remember hearing, you really got me by the kinks. And all of a sudden that was like, a complete game changer. I don't know what it was, but it was the most exciting thing. I, that was like a real turning point. I don't know. It was what – that was it. I thought it was, that's what I, – I love it. And then, of course, I was probably one of the biggest Beatles fans you could ever imagine. And, and then everybody wanted to be, like, in a Beatles band. And in those days, it was kind of like a, a club. You get a, a gang of, of your mates, even if you couldn't play – and you'd pretend to play and everyone would just be sitting around instead of like today everyone plays video games and things like that. But in those days, you bang on pots and you just make music. Even you'd think it was music and it probably sucked and sounded terrible. But there were so many bands and Australia was so far away from the rest of the world that it was too expensive to fly bands that were successful from America and England to Australia. So Australia really supported its own bands and there was such a great industry and so many places to work when you're when you're a kid there was always so many places you know we got a, my first band Steve and the Board we luckily by pure luck had a hit this is way back in 1965 I had a, a top 10 in Australia called my first one that was called uh, the Gigalite Goggleite Goo which my father and one of the uh, the guitar player in the band wrote and I never really wrote that many songs in those days but that was sort of a hit which allowed us to work a lot and I left school and I just went off to another city and we all just were playing. It was no doubt that's what I wanted to do. And um, you just get better and better and better, I think. And then it's not that I said, this is what I'm going to do with my life. It's just that I thought I like doing it now and I've never stopped liking it and I've never had another job other than music my whole life. How do you explain, and we're going to talk about Christina Aguilera's Gene in a Bottle, which, what year was that song written? I think it was, that came out, like 2000, okay. I think. So, and you've been doing this now and, and writing songs and, and hit songs now for basically 40 years. And I listed, you know, some of your biggest hits in the introduction. So I guess 
One question I have is how do you explain your longevity when so many other songwriters either don't have any success, but more importantly, I think, or more relevant is they have one hit, not as big as physical, but a successful song, and they can never duplicate it again. What would you say has been, is it just you're very talented or what do you ascribe your incredible, long, successful career and numerous hits to? I think I can answer that this way. As I said, I was just a kid doing stuff because we had places to play, so that was fun and I loved it, and we kept doing it. And then then I was taken to England and I was in a duo in England and that happened, and I'd been friends with the Bee Gees since I was 11 years old, and, and Robin and Morris were 11 years old, and my dad had a lot to do with the Bee Gees' early stuff. He produced their first number one Australian record. So we were all mates since I was a kid. And so when I went to England, Morris got the duo I was in, signed to Robert Stigwood Records, and um, it sort of carried on. It wasn't like I had this long-range plan that I was going to do great things. It's just I did it as they came. So I was an artist for a lot of these years until I came to America, and then I released a solo album, and that sort of failed, it didn't do very good, but then other people started recording some of the songs. And I had no idea that I never even considered that other people might do my songs and and I could make a living from it. It literally was something I accidentally found out when some people recorded some of my songs that I didn't even know anything about. People were gonna you know, that other people can sing your song and you get paid for it. And it turned out I had some success really as a songwriter. So this is not as an artist that had been the 60s and 70s, but come the 80s, as a songwriter, I started doing really well. And all of a sudden I started having so many people sing my songs. And then I couldn't believe how all this just kept coming. And I just would write a song and I'd send it out. And I was doing really well. Then that seemed to go on into the 90s and all the new wave of, of acts like you know dream and all these different o-town and all those boy bands and things and that all sort of was great then in the 2000s it sort of kept going i don't know and then that's when when we did you know um the script and natasha beddingfield and all those sort of things that all came about then and then it sort of kept going till it got to a point where i had always said i when i write a song i have to believe it so i even though i'm singing a song that I know a girl's going to sing in my mind when I'm singing and writing it, I put myself in that character and I am that person. So, and I really believe it. So each line is really important. And if I don't believe it, then I think, well, why should anyone else believe it? So the only way I'm happy is when I can, even if it's a real corny sort of song, if I believe it and there's something that's touching me in it, then I think it can do well because other people will relate to it. And as soon as they, it doesn't, then it's time to hang it up. And it got to a point where only in the last you know, year or two, I was writing songs and I thought, well, I don't know if I'm believing this as much as I did anymore because I've been doing it for so long. I've sort of written everything. I didn't want to start repeating myself. And also 
I'm an old fart now, you know, I've got grown up kids and stuff. So it's a bit weird to be trying to write songs about teenage angst and love's gone wrong and stuff. All right. So I just thought I was a bit, it's a little bit um, artificial now. And I, so I didn't like that. So I come into the studio every day still, and I doodle around, but I don't send songs out to be recorded anymore. Well, I mean, it kind of answers the question, but not really, because there's a lot of people who write songs. There's a lot of people who send their music out to be heard. There are some people who've written one big song, but can never duplicate it. So I think you're being modest because it sounds like, to me, that the answer is you're just gifted, that you have that spark from God or whomever that allows you to do things that other people can't. And I wish I could say, yeah, you're right. It's, I'm ridiculously talented, but I'm, I don't think I am. I'm, I think I'm someone who just sticks to it. And my saying that I really have to believe it. So if I believe something, then I think that there's something that people want to hear. Another thing I try and do is not try and reproduce what other people are doing on the radio. Like if there's a real trend on a certain type of production or it's dance music, if I don't feel that, I'm not going to try and do that. So I've been lucky that I'll just do the songs that I like and then luckily or fortunately people hear it and they go, well, that's really different. Let me give you an example. Years back when um, – Kelly Rowland was just leaving Destiny's Child. She was going to do a solo album. Now, of course, if she would have done a regular type of a, a love type of a typical sort of a song that you would assume that she would do, people would have then just compared it to Beyonce, and that would have been a bad thing. So she wanted to, or her A&R people, thought, let's go for a different direction. Well, I had literally just recently before – I found out that she was looking at this point. Um, my uh, collaborators, two guys from Canada, Dane DeVilla and Sean Hussein, um, we, they were at my place and we were writing. We'd done Invisible Man for 98 Degrees and a few other things. So we thought, let's just write a song about that's not going to be commercial, that's going to be really about Columbine, you know, like someone walking into a, a classroom and, and killing someone out of control killing some people. And that turned out to be Stole. And that was like a song that never was going to be a hit record. And I thought, well, it wasn't supposed to be something that was going to, it wasn't going to be uplifting or pop. You know, it was going to, it's a really dark song about people getting killed, you know. But then Kelly Rowland's manager heard it and thought, yeah, we'd like to do that. And so I was so happy that she did it. And it needed to be done because it made it gave that song a platform. I never planned it that it was going to be a single, but they wanted something different. So I've had a lot of lucky breaks like that. Well, the harder you work and the more talented you are, the luckier we all get. I mean, that's the bottom line. And you know, when you say things yeah, like, I agree with that. And when you say things like you believed in what you're doing, you know, I feel the same way about you know. I'm nowhere near. I've no had nowhere near the success you've had, but. As a lawyer, you have to believe, as a trial lawyer, you have to believe in what you're saying and believe in what you're doing. And that comes across and then people grab onto it. And I think 
maybe that's the same concept, which is if you really believe and you put everything you have into it and you believe in what you're doing, success follows. But I got to tell you, you know, there are millions of songwriters out there and there's only one Steve Kipner and there are very few people. Oh, thank you. There are very few people who've had this longevity that you've had and have written these incredible songs and over the course of many years with incredible artists and some of the greatest artists of all time. So you're being modest, that's for sure. And I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that you're just incredibly talented. Another song that we've mentioned that's, would you say Genie in a Bottle is your second most successful song? Yeah, there's a difference between successful song and sort of best songs or whatever. It was definitely my second biggest song as far as being commercial, and I really liked it. And that was another song that wasn't planned. That was one of those things. There was a bit of music with David Frank and Pam Shane, and we all just got there, and and it's looping around with these computers now, and, and uh, you can just loop around with a section of music and literally just start singing, and you start to sing. And there was no title or anything. We just started, I think the first line was, the century of lonely nights, that section. And then all of a sudden that sounded a little bit Arabic. And then it turned out that um, it turned into that. And that was written in a day. That was not a planned intellectual thing where you thought, oh, let's write, this would be a great thing to write about it. That was one of those spontaneous things that literally came out of the air, literally. Well, how did you hook up with Christina Aguilera for that one? That's interesting that you would connect with her. How did that happen? Well, we had finished, the, we did the demo. That was David Frank, Pam Shane, and myself. And we had done the demo, and then we had sent it around thinking, wow, this sounds like a great song. This is, let's get it to some people. And we immediately had quite a few different artists or the managers or record companies involved with those artists say, Oh, yeah, we want this. And one of the groups was an international group called Innocence, and, and they were apparently going to be like the female Backstreet Boys or whatever. And we thought, well, that sounds good because it's that sounds great. But then David Frank was friends with Ron Fair because they had done – David Frank had done a lot of keyboards on Wild Orchid, which is the band that Fergie came from. I know Ron Fair, uh, by the way. He's a very good friend of mine. Great. He's a great guy. And, and Ron was – great and he was a good friend of David's and he said look you know I've got this new artist she's just great let me just have her come up and put a, a vocal on just to so you can hear her voice and see it see if that changes you know who you want to give it to just it won't hurt you just come up for a couple of hours put her voice on and see well Christina came up to David Frank's house at that point he had a studio he lived in Topanga, like me, also just a mile up the street, and uh, Christina came over and and sang it, and it was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> this was like ridiculous. I mean, it just sounded. She was just like ridiculous, and how could we not give it to her? So that was it. That was the smartest thing for uh, Ron Fair to say, just have her come up and sing it, and she did, and pretty much that. The record, you know, happened within the next few days after that. And how successful was Genie in a Bottle? Well, it was it was number one in so many countries. It it was and and Christina, it was her first single. She had had a song called Mulan for the movie, but she she'd never had a hit record, and um, it just blew up like big time. Now, I'm terrible at titles. I think I wanted to call it 
if you want to be with me. And someone said, are you crazy? It's got to be called Yinny in a Bottle. So I'm not the best with titles. But it was one of those things that was like, wow, had no idea this was going to do so well. And it's brilliant. And then all these – I was just out there – Again, I'm lucky. I'm a very lucky guy. And it, it is a good song, so I'm not being humble there. But I think if you, you do what you do and you do it with all your intent and you do give it everything you can, it still takes luck because you can, there's a lot of real talented people out there that are great that just don't get the break. So I, I lucked out. Well, I mean, once is lucky. Twice maybe, but 40-year <laughs> career with <laughs> unlimited number of hits. What did you contribute to that song, Genie in the Bottle? Did you contribute the melody? Did you contribute the lyrics? You said it was a collaboration, so I'm curious. Well, uh, David Frank is an amazing uh, keyboard player, and he was originally in that duo called The System. And David and I had been writing songs, and he's just a fantastic writer. And he was working that day with Pam Shane, and then they said, why don't I come up? David and I did other songs like, the hardest thing for 98 degrees and quite a few other songs that have done pretty well, really well, you know, top five songs. And um, so David plays music. I, I play, but not like David, like he's an, an incredible player. So when I'm around someone who's just great, that I think is great, just let them go for it. And then I literally, as we said, I start singing and Pam was singing and we were both just, you know, like overpowering each other. <laughs> you get a line you like and, she gets the line she likes, and you just belt it out till somehow it becomes. Now that's the that's the line, and we literally all wrote it on the spot. That was that was done. David had already had the idea for the the chords and and the basic sort of sound because he couldn't sleep that morning and got up really early and went into the studio and sort of came up with a lot of that track. And then after that was done, um, and we had the demo, and then when we we're doing Christina. David and I, at that point, when we wrote songs together, we also produced them. So David and I produced that. So it's not in, that anyone wrote any one particular line. It was we all got in there together. Okay. All right. And I could keep you on here forever, but we've already been on for quite some time. And I want to – the one thing that you just said that really is interesting to me, which I think would be very interesting to other people as well, is you just said there's a difference between the best song and the biggest hit. So that leads me to two more questions for you, which is, number one, what would you say is the best song you ever wrote? And number two, why do you think that something is better than another song? Like, for example, if your best song is not either physical or genie in a bottle, then what makes, in your mind, the song that you would think is your best song, the best song that you've written? Well, I have to answer that by saying, me saying what I think is my best song doesn't mean everyone's going to agree because that's what makes a horse race. You know, everyone bets on a different horse. I love those songs and I'm really proud of every song, most of the songs I've done. But there are some other songs. In fact, there's one song I can think of that actually never got recorded. It was supposed to be recorded but then someone had it on hold for a, a year and it was it was just a great song and it was about it was called it's not all about me and it was another sort of song in the stole about like the Kelly Rowland thing but it was about 
how to be grateful for what you – it's one of those songs that I, it just meant a lot to me, and I just thought that was a great song. And I'm still – I think it's one of my favourite songs. In fact, I'll send you the demo of that too, shall I? Yes, please do. So, but I, I've got lots of songs that I really, really am proud of. You know, I'm really proud of Break Even. I, I just because uh, when I listened to Break Even when we when we wrote that, every line meant something. It wasn't just like let me put a filler. Let's get a line that that rhymes with that line. It was like every line had to sort of say something. And I remember always say, for example, on that song where it goes. Um, I'm wide awake while you're busy sleeping. Like that, that you can get on with your life and you can be happy and, and just getting on with things while I'm sitting here all the time. That was like a really heavy moment. Then, then um, Danny or or Andrew would say something else that would be just as significant. And it was like that song was like, wow, this is a really great song, whether it was a hit or not. I really just thought I love that song. And there's a lot of great songs. There's so many. I, I don't have a favorite song. But what makes, got, in your mind, what makes a good song? I mean, if, and that's, I guess that's my question. Something that feels complete. You know, like sometimes you can cook a pasta and you can throw it on your plate and it's something to eat. And sometimes you can actually do it and it just, you know, you spend a bit more time on it and it just looks, wow, that looks amazing. It just, and it's, it's just something about it is just, you like it and it feels great. It has to mean something. That's why I don't really like, if each line means says something and it isn't disposable like for example here's a quick example i'd written hard habit to break and you know we'd done that for chicago and had a big hit and then then there was another song that they did that was going to be a single and it was called as long as niagara falls well i'd written this song with bobby caldwell and the last line of the chorus well it goes as long as niagara falls as long as gibraltar stands Till hell freezes over, and it and it had to rhyme with stands, and I couldn't find it, and I never felt satisfied. I, I always felt I failed, even though it was an okay hit. I always thought that I actually didn't get it right, and so because I didn't get it right, that isn't one of my favourite songs. You know what I mean? Because I, I kind of in my mind, it was a hurdle I tried to jump over, and I crashed. But even though it did all right. And some people, there might be some people who really like that and like that last line, but I thought it was a bit of a cop-out and I ended up compromising and I just don't, it wasn't that I just compromised. I didn't know what to do. There, there was no answer. I should have, now in hindsight, I should have changed the whole thing. But, so it's not like every time everything is great. You know, it, you really have to work for each song. Each song is different. You know, there are completely different problems you come up against that you didn't expect that this would trip you up when, well, hang on, I've done been here a thousand times before. Why is this one so hard? But it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. When you finally get that piece, you feel proud about it. And when you don't, you feel like you you failed. How many songs have you written in your career? Released songs? Well, it's, songs? Funny, it's funny that you should say that because normally I wouldn't know. But just recently I've been getting my catalogs organized a little bit and from for ASCAP I'm also with uh, PRS in England but with ASCAP I've got 977 songs which is a lot of songs like actually published and mostly most of them were recorded and these are all released published and recorded songs it seems so which is crazy right I think and I look back at some of these things if I'm really honest there's a 
bunch of those titles. I literally can't remember how the song goes. But there's a lot of songs there. I do remember most of them, though. That's amazing. What an amazing career. I couldn't play half of them. What instruments do you play, by the way? Well, really, these days you play computer, but I, when I'm sitting and doodling in, in front of the TV, it's usually a guitar. Okay. Um, I do play piano, and with computer, you know, because you program things, you can sit at a keyboard and you can say, I want to have an organ. So you just bring up a sample of an organ, or I want to have drums, I want to play some drums, and then the drums come up. But generally, I, I play guitar. Amazing. And you're not classically trained, and you did not have anyone who taught you how to write songs. You just had the, the ability to do it. Well, my father, Matt Kipner, had a number one record in America before me. He wrote Johnny Mathis, uh, that song, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. Remember that song? Yes, I've heard it. He wrote that. And he was always like a – when a lot of kids would probably say, Dad, I want to be in um, – in a band, a lot of parents would say, no way, but my dad was, go for it. You know, he, he was really encouraging. So I've been really lucky. There you go. I'm lucky again. I might have had a different set of parents that didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Well, this has been an amazing interview, Steve. I could literally talk to you all day, and I know we'll talk offline. And well, you're I'd a good bloke, mate. You're a good guy, and I really don't do this very often only because there's nothing really that I find that interesting but because I've, I've been living it all my life but when you you said do I want to do it talking to you is always a pleasure so well, I really wouldn't appreciate I? you saying that coming from you especially and Steve let me ask you just to put your career in perspective how many gold and platinum records have you written on there is so many this is now I'm feeling like I'm being um, egomaniac here, but I had so many that I had them up in my studio I had in Topanga, and it took up all the walls. And then one day I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, I'm, this is so pathetic that um, I'm being so uh, conceited putting up all these things up. So now um, when my mother died a couple of years ago, I had to clear out the, her garage and all those records and all my – awards have all been in her garage collecting dust and now they're in the back of my garage all covered up because it's there's something i just don't want to display because i don't want my life to be about awards and things like that it's i'm just really just wanting to have the best life i can and not say look what i done because looking back at the past is such a a negative thing it's nice to think well i've, I've had a, a great life and things have happened but it's sort of like a weight that weighs you down into going into the future. I, I really don't think much about the past. I'm really into what I'm doing now and what what's going to happen. What, what can I do? I want to keep learning. I want to keep knowing stuff because in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. And also awards can be saying that my song is better than other people's songs. It's just that I'm so fortunate to have made a living from having people do my songs so I really honestly don't think much about them. So it would be fair to say that, and, and since you're a very modest man, I'll be... I think I can only say that, by the way, because I do have a few stashed away. If I didn't well, have I it, say, maybe it... You're being incredibly modest and humble, and so I'm going to be a little immodest for you. Would it be fair to say, therefore, this is like my lawyer cross-examination technique, 
would it be fair to say, therefore, that you have so many gold records, you can't even tell me how many you have. You've lost count. I promise you, I promise you, if my life depended on it, I can't. Okay, with that, I'm going to say thank you to Steve Kipner, the great, the legendary Steve Kipner, one of a kind, for taking your time to be on Blurred Laws in Life. I can't tell you how much I appreciated it and enjoyed having you on. I'm sure everyone who listens is going to be amazed um, about your incredible career. Thanks so much, mate. It's been good talking to you. You as well, Steve. Okay, take care. I want to thank very much Steve Kipner for appearing on Blur Laws and Light this week. A man who has written so many gold records that he can't even keep count. He reminded me, and I almost said to him during the interview, or asked him during the interview, whether he ever saw that legendary Saturday Night Live skit, More Cowbell, where Blue Oyster Cult is performing, and Will Ferrell is playing the cowbell, and Christopher Walken is portraying Bruce Dickinson, yes, the Bruce Dickinson, and he says, guys, I'm just like you. I put my pants on one leg at a time, except when my pants are on, I make gold records. And Steve Kipner could have easily portrayed Bruce Dickinson. And lastly, as I said at the beginning of this episode, it is now the morning after, the day after November 3rd, when I am recording this conclusion, and it does appear that we will have a new president of the United States. It is not decided completely, very, very close, but it does appear we may have a new president of the United States and Joe Biden, but once again, it is far from decided. And if there is litigation, you will know where to tune in to learn all about it. Blurred laws and life. So I hope you enjoyed this 31st episode of Blurred Laws in Life, and we will talk to you next week. Next week.